Welcome to Night Sky Tourist, a place to learn the night sky, have fun with its ancient stories, meet astronomers and dark sky advocates, and fall in love with the dark. I'm Vicki Dirksen, your host and author of the website and blog, nightskytourist.com. If you've never visited the website, I invite you to stop by after the podcast. Check out some of the great blog articles, browse through the resource page, and sign up for the newsletters. The newsletters have great content that is exclusive for subscribers. Are you ready for an adventure under the night sky? Let's jump right in. I first became acquainted with Paul Bogard's work on a trip home from Flagstaff, Arizona. Flagstaff is the world's first international dark sky community, and my route home took me through Happy Jack, where Lowell Observatory's Discovery Telescope is located. So it seemed to me like a very appropriate time to start listening to the audible version of The End of Night by Paul Bogard. The entire drive felt a bit surreal to me. I was surrounded by some of the most beautiful landscape that Arizona has to offer, while Paul's book cast a spell on me. Yes, it's a book that dives deep into the topic of artificial light and light pollution, but it's written in a way that feels like really great fiction. The storytelling carried me past Lake Mary Road in northern Arizona and across the globe to London and Paris, the Kalahari Desert, the Isle of Sark, and the Las Vegas Strip. And Paul and I talk about this book in this episode. In addition to The End of Night, Paul has also authored The Ground Beneath Us, From the Oldest Cities to the Last Wilderness, What Dirt Tells Us About Who We Are. And he also published a coffee table book called To Know a Starry Night and the children's book What If Night. Paul is an associate professor of English at Hamlin University in St. Paul, Minnesota, where he teaches environmental literature and writing. Please join me tonight in welcoming to the podcast, Paul Bogard. Paul, thank you so much for joining me on the Night Sky Tourist podcast. I'm so excited to talk to you about your books. Thanks. Glad to be here. So I'm really curious, as I've read through your books, because you've you've written a book on a topic outside of the night sky. And so I'm curious, what is it that caught your attention and got you interested in the night sky to begin with? Yeah, I think it starts when I was a kid uh, growing up in Minnesota. We have a cabin in the northern part of the state. And so every summer and sometimes in the winter, we'd go up there and uh, it gave me the really uh, wonderful gift of experiencing a real night sky and real darkness. And I like to say that that experience imprinted on me. It just, uh, you know, it, I, I got to see what night is supposed to look like without light pollution. Um, and so years later, uh, after after college, actually, I think I was in graduate school um, and kind of looking around for things to write about. I was living in New Mexico. Um, which in Albuquerque uh, with a pretty good night sky um, and you can get to a good night sky pretty quickly in New Mexico. And I realized looking around that there wasn't, um, there weren't really any books uh, about the subject. And uh, so I, you know, you start by thinking about the stars and how we can't see the stars. And then you very quickly start to learn about all the other 
impacts um, all the other costs from light pollution and kind of one thing led to another and it's been a great ride for the last uh, 10 or so years. One of the things that I thought was so interesting about your book, The End of Night, is that you you went farther than most things that I've read that address light pollution because most people go into what, like what you were talking about, you know, like the impact that it has on us, but you went a step farther where you went back in time. And you, you kind of gave us this history of artificial light and you traveled to places around the world and you, you studied it. And I just, I found that really fascinating. Can you give us a little overview of how we as humanity went from just sitting around the campfires at night to lighting up Times Square and then Las Vegas Strip. Yeah, and I mean, that was a really fun part of the book to write and to research too. I mean, reading the, there there are some good histories about the development of artificial light and kind of, you know, people's reactions to, um, you know, seeing uh, the, the new technologies that come out that kind of, you know, shock people. And, and uh, so it was, it was fun to, fun to do that research and then obviously fun to, you know, go to places like London and Paris and, and wander around and kind of imagine what it was like back before, uh, especially electronic lighting changed everything. I mean, the gradual, you know, progression is from essentially fire to uh, gas lamp to uh, electric light to now electronic lighting. Um, and the I think the thing that interests me along with just the history and kind of that fascination of, of things is that the philosophy behind it or the thinking behind it is also really interesting. So the, you know, the descriptions of Europe, for example, Western Europe before artificial light was just that, you know, night would fall and people would just lock themselves in their houses and, you know, hope that, you know, they wouldn't, wouldn't venture outside. Uh, night was the time of, of thieves and, and criminals and that kind of thing. And um, light came along and kind of invited people out into the night a little bit more, but we've never sort of lost that fear of, you know, night being the time of, of bad things. And, um, and alternately that light can help wipe that, uh, wipe that away. And, and so, as the technology has developed, the thinking has just kind of continued along that line. And we still have the situation where it's, you know, dark is darkness is bad, light is good, and more light is even better. So I, I, I think that the story of the technology goes along with the story of the, the philosophy or the thinking behind the light, which I was equally interested in too. And you just touched on something that I always think it's fascinating to talk about. And that's that idea of our fear of the dark. I mean, this is kind of the human experience is this fear of the dark. I'm curious to know if you think that people are more afraid of the dark now that we have artificial light than we were before we had it. I think it's really hard to say. I mean, like, you know, when, when you do read back, I think people were definitely had a fear of the dark as a place where, you know, criminals can hide or you might get robbed if you go out kind of thing. So I don't, I don't want to dismiss that. And I think our, when we think about fear of the dark, I usually think about it in terms of sort of a, you know, it's just part of being human that we've been afraid of the dark forever. And also that, especially in our modern society, that 
that fear is reinforced by media, you know, movies, TV shows, uh, you, you name it kind of thing where it's just kind of again and again and again reinforced, but it's not just one or the other, not just sort of biological or inherited or media. I think it's, it's that mix. And maybe the difference is that now we know so much about the value of darkness and how important it is and how, you know, we're losing it and, and, and all these things that I talk about in my books and we're still so afraid of it that we light everything up and then shut our doors and go inside and go to sleep. (laughs) So it's like, we still have that fear of the dark, even though we know that lighting everything up is, is not good for us or the environment or um, any living creature. You have this image, this photograph in your book that I think is so powerful and it's a picture of the side of someone's house. I think it's a house that has an outdoor floodlight that's on. And then there's a second photo where someone has held their hand up to block the glare from that light. And you realize that there's a man standing in the gate that you couldn't see when you had that glare in your eyes. What, an, what a really powerful image that is. Really powerful image. And I didn't take the pictures, um, uh, but I do have them in the book and I have them in my uh, slideshow, my presentation, and it never fails to elicit, you know, surprise or even, you know, gasps or, you know, that kind of thing. When I go from the first picture to the second picture, and that first picture is, it is actually a, a house in Tucson, actually, and it's just a security light, as we call it, but it's unshielded and it's just blasting light, you know, in all directions into your eyes. If you were the photographer uh, up into the sky all around and it's casting shadows and, you know, the next image is, as you say, the photographer's hand just shields that light as, as though a, a shield were placed on the light. And all of a sudden the shadows go away and you're not blinded. And lo and behold, there's the bad guy, it's kind of funny because he's a totally innocuous, just, you know, astronomer guy just standing there in a pose, but um, there's the bad guy standing in the fence and nobody sees him mm-hmm. in the first image. And then, so I always go back to that first image and I say, see, you can kind of, he is there. You can kind of see the edge of his, you know, silhouette there. And the point is that bright lights make it harder for us to see and they cast shadows where the bad guys can hide. and probably most problematic they give the illusion of safety we we think oh it's bright lights it's all lit up it's safe but you know that's just not it's not the case you can't say that absolutely and i'm very involved in the world of dark sky advocacy and one of the things that i try to tell people all the time is that this isn't about getting rid of all of the lights. This is about using the right kind of lights, being smart about our lights. And so in that case, like you said, whoever put that there probably thought, oh, I'm safer now with it here. When in reality, they're they're creating an illusion of safety. And so it wasn't the right kind of light. No, that's absolutely right. And, and that's, you know, a caveat that I often give at the start of a talk. Well, you know, a few slides in, I'll just say, you know, Look, the problem is not artificial light at night. The problem is how we use it, you know, and, and yes. my, my rough, you know, definition of, of light pollution is the overuse and misuse of artificial light at night. So 
the remedy isn't let's not have light. I mean, that's, you know, not going to happen. And, and mm-hmm. we're, nobody's saying that, you know, the remedy is how can we use light thoughtfully, creatively, intelligently, have the light that we need and where we need it and not somewhere else, not elsewhere. One of the things I love to do is to encourage people to get out and have an experience with a night sky, even if they have to drive somewhere, if they have to plan a trip somewhere. And for me, I think that's some of the fun. You know, I live in the Phoenix area and I love taking a trip up to Flagstaff and visiting Lowell Observatory where Pluto was discovered. And, you know, we have the meteor crater nearby. And so I, I, I'm up for a good road trip anytime, but in your book, you, you have this part where you're in Times Square, Mm. you know, and, and experiencing the night sky kind of, I guess, in, um, in the light of, of the strip there. Mm. And then you go up into the wilderness area in Nevada. And so for people who've never really paid attention to leaving a really bright area like that, whether it's Chicago or LA or New York or whatever, and taking a drive into a wilderness area, what's that like? Like that contrast as you move away farther and farther from that city? Yeah, it's, it was, a. Uh, I mean, one of the first things I did when, with the book was hop on a plane and fly to Las Vegas. Um, and and because everybody knows about the lighting there. And then as you say, rent a car and drive up to Great Basin National Park, which is one of our darkest national parks. So that contrast was was really fun. And I think the uh, the neat thing about that drive too is that, you know, obviously Las Vegas is an urban uh, area, but very quickly that urban area ends and you just are out in the middle of the desert um, driving along. And I had that experience of, of night rising in the east and moving over, you know, over me and, um, it's just, it's so stark, the difference between what we normally think of as night and what it's supposed to look like and what it looks like naturally. You know, if you get out into a place like the desert in the West or Great Basin National Park in this instance, you know, and there are, you know, few, if any lights around and you're just, I think most people are stunned by what they see above them and with the stars, um, but also, you know, what they see around them and how well they can see and what it feels like and sounds like. And, and um, it's just the whole experience of night is different than it is if you're all bundled up and walking down a street or more likely driving down a street in a city, um, cooped up in your car and surrounded by all these lights. It's just, um, I sometimes wherever I am in a city, I'll look up and I'll see the moon and it's like this tiny little wafer of white light, you know, just kind of sneaking across the sky that nobody's noticing versus, you know, you get out into the woods or the desert or someplace dark and the moon becomes this big lamp of beautiful white light. And it's, uh, it's such a different kind of night than we normally think of. I lead stargazing hikes from time to time here in the desert and We've had an experience similar to that. I think it was the last hike that I did. We don't even go when it's a full moon because then you can't really see a lot of the great stars. So we go in the first quarter moon and even that moon is really bright. And I remember one of the people who joined the hike stood there for a second and they said, I had no idea 
that the moon can make such strong shadows. They've never experienced it before. No, it's true. And I'm an old story. I remember it was uh, some, I think it was in England and some, uh, a tour guide took out a group that included some people who had grown up in the city and been in prison and were, they'd gotten out on this hike and all of a sudden they were just like scared. What's that sound? You know, and, (laughs) and and the tour guide said, it's okay. They're just cows, you know, just, (laughs) just, you know, the experience of being out at night is just so foreign to uh, so many of us, unfortunately. Yeah, I recently interviewed um, Chris Salisbury, and um, he has a book called Wild Nights Out, Mm. and he talks about this. He talks about how when we get outside at night, when we're not accustomed to being out there and we think that everything is scary, he he takes groups out just like you're talking about and um, gets them to get their eyes acclimated to the dark and and then to start using their ears to really listen and to listen past their fear and I just I love it I think it's so fascinating and you know you talked about this trip to Great Basin National Park and um, <laughs> a couple of weeks ago I heard somebody tell me how they had visited there for the first time in their life and the way they described what the night sky looked like there was to them, it was like looking at snow, but in the sky, that's mm-hmm. how many stars they, that they could see. Yeah. I use that same analogy in my book and the, probably the most amazing, well, definitely the most amazing night sky I've ever seen was in Southern Morocco. And I was out there backpacking and and uh came out in the middle of the night from where we were staying and that was my first thought was that it was snowing you know and it's you know it's the <laughs> the desert i think it was november but it was the dead the desert it was not snowing but there were so many stars and you know stars from horizon to horizon and and for a kid from many minnesota it was that first thought was snow that's what it seemed like and i've heard people say um, especially in that part of the world that you're talking about, like near the Kalahari, Kalahari and stuff, that they feel like they could, they have the sensation that they feel like they could put their hands up and just run their fingers through the stars. Yeah, I mean, it really is that it's just in so many ways that experiences the stars feel closer. Um, I love the feeling of, you know, you have the sense of the universe revolving over you, stars rising from the eastern horizon and falling off the edge of the earth in the west. You know, um, you look up and you often, I often you kind of lose my balance because it's just kind of disoriented. You know, you're just, you feel like you're among the stars and, and uh, your connection to the, to the earth gets a little more tenuous. So um, it's all good. It's a pretty, uh, like I say, an amazing experience. And it's interesting, you know, in talking about this history of, of artificial light to think that, you know, we go back far enough, not, well, not even all that far. And that was the typical experience for everybody on earth. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's something I like to say that we've taken what was once one of the most common human experiences, which is, you know, walking out your door and coming face to face with the universe. And we've made it one of the most rare human experiences. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think, you know, the costs, you know, we can talk about, you know, the, the energy costs or the carbon emissions or, or um, you know, environmental costs, health costs, all those things. But there are also so many just intangible costs that things we've lost from having that 
experience of, of looking up and just being filled with awe at what, what we see. Um, and that's what I often try to get at is, you know, who knows all the inspiration that's being lost, all the solace that's being lost right now when we look up and, you know, see a handful of stars, but it's not that impressive. Well, so we've, we've referenced your book, End of Night, but I know that you have some other books about the night sky. Do you want to share about those for a minute here? Yeah. So I um, also have a children's book, which is, was really fun to write um, called What If Nights. And uh, it was my first venture into uh, the worlds of children's literature, which I've learned a whole lot about in the last, my, it's actually my daughter's fourth birthday today. So uh, it's, been, <laughs> it's been four years of learning about children's literature. Um, that was fun. And then I just brought out a, um, uh, I guess you'd say a coffee table book called To Know a Starry Night. And that combines really breathtaking uh, photographs from the Western U.S. by Bo Rogers, a wonderful photographer. And then my essays, um, they're new essays just about this experience that we've been talking about of what, what is it like to be out under or among or in or a naturally dark night and uh, why is that why is it valuable why should we care that it's an experience that fewer and fewer people get to have um so it's a wonderful book they're both wonderful books i hope i hope people check them out i also have another one of yours sitting on my bookshelf let there be night that one i love the title of that book yeah in a way that's the one that started it all i did that in graduate school and it's an anthology where I ask people to write about the value of darkness and uh, a wonderful experience to have the essays come in because a lot of people have great stories about, about um, their experience with night. So where can people find you online and buy your books? Yeah, online. I, th- I think uh, if you just Google my name, Paul Bogard, you'll find me. I have a, the website is uh, paul-bogard.com. Um, I'm happy to hear from people through the website. Uh, books should be available, certainly on Amazon, um, and certainly available through local bookstores. Um, uh, they can always order them. Uh, and yeah, happy to have people contact me and happy to, uh, obviously, one of the great, great things is hearing from people who found the books and enjoyed them and um, reach out and, and just let me know that. It, that never gets old. I always enjoy hearing that. Paul, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Um, I'm just, I'm thrilled to promote your books and you're an amazing author. And I think that people will be really, really surprised at how, uh, how much of a page turner these books are. They're not these geeky books, but they're just so well-written. And I think that people are just going to enjoy every minute that they spend with them. Thank you. It's really kind. It's nice to be here with you. Night Sky Tourist friends, the Star Tour is coming up in just a minute. But first, I want to invite you to visit nightskytourist.com where you can download my full color stargazing guide. It's called Things to See in the Night Sky in 2022. This month by month guide lets you know what constellations to look for, when to see the planets and meteor showers, how to track the moon, and a lot more. And the best part is that it's free. It's my gift to you so that you can keep up on what's happening overhead at night. All you have to do is visit nightskytourist.com and 
and sign up. What are you waiting for? It's time for our star tour across the night sky. And this is when you pause a podcast, gather everybody in your house, and head outside at night. I'll meet you outside under the stars. Summer is a great time to see the Milky Way stretching across the night sky. And in a minute, I'm going to tell you where to find it. But first, we're going to take a look at one of summer's great constellations, Scorpius. Scorpius is really easy to find. Face towards the south, and you'll find it just above the southern horizon. And there's no doubt that it looks like a giant scorpion when it has fully risen above the horizon. Perhaps you've heard it referred to by its astrological name of Scorpio. And if you're curious about the differences between astrology and astronomy, I've written a really great blog article about it, and you can check it out in the show notes for a link. One of the first things that people notice about Scorpius is the bright red twinkly star, and that star is called Antares. And it's often referred to as the heart of the scorpion. It's the 15th brightest star in the night sky, and its mass is about 12 times larger than our sun. When you're looking at Scorpius, you're looking in the direction of the center of our Milky Way galaxy, which is pretty cool. In ancient Egypt, Antares represented the scorpion goddess, Serket, and it was the symbol of Isis in pyramidal ceremonies. In ancient China, it was the national star of the Shang Dynasty, and the Maori of New Zealand regarded it as the chief of all stars, while the Kaori people of Australia knew Antares as the son of Arcturus, which is the brightest star in the constellation Bootes. And we learned about Bootes in the last episode, if you want to check that out. Scorpius is often intertwined with Orion in Greek mythology. In one myth, Orion boasted that he would kill every animal on the earth. The goddess hunter Artemis and her mother Leto sent out a scorpion to kill Orion. And when the scorpion won the battle, Zeus put Scorpius in the sky. In a different myth, the god Apollo, Artemis's twin brother, grew angry at Orion because he claimed to be a better hunter than Artemis. So he sent a scorpion to attack Orion. And later, Zeus put both Orion and Scorpius in the sky, but they are visible at different times of the year. They are never seen in the sky together. Now, back to the Milky Way. If you have never seen the Milky Way before, I encourage you to make plans to go somewhere dark enough so you can see it. You don't have to travel all the way to the wilderness, but depending on where you live, you might need to travel an hour or more to see it. You also might be surprised that you can see the faint stream of it and you didn't know that that's what you were looking at. To get a good look at this, I recommend waiting to stargaze until a little later in the evening right now, after 10 p.m. In another month, it's going to be directly overhead and we'll do this exercise again. So start by looking just above the southeastern horizon and look for the constellation Sagittarius. It looks like a teapot with a pointy lid. You can use your stargazing app if you need a little help because it is close to the horizon right now. Just make sure that you turn the screen brightness all the way down first. Can you see Sagittarius? The Milky Way appears to rise right out of the spout like a steam spreading across the sky. 
If it's difficult for you to see that, find Sagittarius, and from Sagittarius, it moves north through the constellation Aquila, and then farther north through Cygnus, and then through Cassiopeia, which might be a little too close to the horizon to spot. So tonight, the Milky Way looks like it's running from the southeastern part of the sky toward the northeastern part of the sky. If you stargaze around midnight tonight, it's going to be more directly overhead. But let's set some expectations here, okay? It's not going to look like those stunning images of the Milky Way that you get to see on, on Instagram. Those are taken with a long time lapse, and a lot of times some coloring has been added. That's not to say that it's not going to be stunning in its natural state if you can get under some really good dark skies. 80% of the world's population can no longer see the Milky Way from where they live, and 99% of Americans can no longer see it from where they live. This is heartbreaking. So if you are able to take a little adventure trip far enough away from city lights, I really hope that you do it. Be sure to check out the show notes for links that were mentioned in this episode or visit nightskytourist.com slash 43. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Night Sky Tourist podcast. If you enjoy the Night Sky Tourist podcast, please show your support by subscribing to it in your podcatcher and leave a written review. Your reviews are really important to me, and they help others discover the podcast. Be sure to visit nightskytourist.com for great articles and resources. And while you're there, sign up for the newsletter for exclusive content. We'll see you here again in two weeks. Until then, keep looking up.